If you're new with us this morning, uh, we started a new series a couple weeks ago. We typically take a book of the Bible and preach through it, kind of verse by verse. But we're, we're taking a break from that um, kind of typical practice that we usually do uh, to give our attention to several important topics. We've titled this series, Living by the Book. Uh, how is it that God wants us to live in the world, whatever state of life we are in? And today we want to talk about God's design for masculinity what it means to be a man, what that's supposed to look like. Uh, I don't probably have to tell you that men and women are different. We are different physically. We are different in our mental and emotional makeup. We are different often in our strengths and in our weaknesses. But why are we different? Why did God make us different? What does it mean? What is it for? These are important questions that need to be answered, especially in the day and age in which we live, a time where there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and what that's supposed to look like. So I want to take just the next two weeks to address biblical manhood and womanhood. We'll talk about masculinity today and femininity next week, but I want to ask you this question as we begin. What comes to your mind when you think about what it means to be a man? Maybe you think of kind of the masculine stereotypes, sort of the idealistic hero, you know, the macho man, John Wayne, Navy SEALs, power tools, pickup trucks, football pads. You think of an image of strength, physical prowess. Maybe you think of success, the guy who knows it all and can do it all. You know, all that stuff's good and fine, nothing wrong with that, but biblical masculinity goes deeper than that. And it's possible, even for those of us who may be bad at fixing cars, those of us who can't bench as much as Carrie Wilson, those of us who can't grow a good beard, it's possible for us to be fully and faithfully masculine in a biblical sense, even if some of those things are perhaps beyond our reach. But maybe what comes to your mind is a different image. Maybe you think of something that's actually fairly negative. You think of sort of the undeveloped man, the lazy meathead type guy who has no appreciation for the arts, who's completely disinterested in the needs and interests of others, the kind of guy who would never change a diaper, the kind of guy who doesn't know his way around the kitchen. He's completely clueless, and he only wants to watch TV after a long day of work. Maybe that's the image of manhood and masculinity that comes to your mind. This kind of man is passive. This kind of man is negligent. You know, the world might chuckle, It's sort of the Homer Simpson stereotype. But the Bible has much to say to this kind of man. And maybe that's the image that comes to your mind. But, you know, there's perhaps even another image of masculinity that comes to your mind, one that is not just negative, one that's actually harmful. Maybe you think of a man who is arrogant and abusive, oppressive, the kind of man who uses his strength and his position to control and to manipulate and to exploit others. His priorities are conquest and control. He sees other people as merely tools to be used in the pursuit of his goals. The world calls this toxic masculinity. The Bible just calls it sin. You know, the world, because of these such harmful aberrations, the world, the culture, calls for a rejection of masculinity altogether because of such problems and seeks to redefine masculinity. But scripture calls for repentance from sin and the redemption 
of masculinity. You know, there's a lot of different voices out there when it comes to what does it mean to be a man and what is a man supposed to look like. And we can take our marching orders from the world if we choose. We can react against the voices we like least. We can listen to the voices we like best. Or we can listen to God's voice. We can reject what the world has to say altogether and instead pursue a biblical masculinity, the vision of manhood that actually fleshes out God's will for us as his creatures. So I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 this morning. Two points for this morning's sermon, and the first point is about 90% of it because that's where most of our attention needs to be. The first point this morning is that we must embrace God's design for masculinity. If you've been around, you know we've been in the book of Genesis for about a year and a half, but we're going back there again because this is where it all starts for us. In Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that we must embrace God's design for masculinity. As we look in chapter 1, in verse 27, we see an amazingly profound statement. This is in that first week of creation, and at the culmination of God's work of creation, he makes mankind. In verse 27, it says, so God created man... Referring here not just to men, but to the human race. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Men are made to reflect God's image. That is a theological reality. That is a statement of purpose and calling that is profound And that wasn't just true for Adam and Eve, but for all that would come through their descendants. Men and women are made to reflect God's image. To be made in the image of God means that we are like God in ways that nothing else in creation is. We are like him in ways that plants and animals and solar systems and mountain ranges and molecules can't be. There's something unique about men and women that lends dignity and purpose. We are made to be like God in ways that nothing else is. We reflect his glory in that sense, like little mirrors that reflect something about God. But it doesn't just mean we're like God. To, it also means that we are to represent God. Not just, it's not just that this is what we are. This is what we are to do. Does that make sense? It's what we are to do. We are to represent God in the world. Our design comes with a calling to reflect his glory in the way that we function in the world. Men and women both do this. We'll talk about that this week and next week, but there are certain ways that men and women do this uniquely. There's certain ways that men and women do this in ways that the other doesn't, in ways that the other can't. And in that sense, our differences complement one another. God designed men and women unique in both form and function. And these differences are not to be erased. These differences are not to be blurred. These differences are to be celebrated and embraced. Biblical masculinity and femininity are good. God is glorified when both men and women reflect his glory in their differences. So we have to ask the question, how does man, specifically men, how do we reflect the image of God, perhaps in ways that women don't. Well, man reflects God's image in the exercising of authority and in the fulfilling of responsibility. Those two words are very important. In the exercising of authority, number one, and the fulfilling of responsibility, 
number two. I want you to notice God's intent for Adam's role in the created order. This is where we get to chapter two. If you're flip over one page, if you're not already there, Genesis chapter two. We saw that God created man and woman in his image. We are to be like him to reflect his glory. But we see this unique intent for men specifically. Look in verse 7. This actually goes back and sort of unpacks what happened in chapter 1. Kind of an instant replay that slows things down and maybe gives us a second angle on what God was doing and how he did it when he created man and woman. uh, Chapter 1 just says he created male and female, that he made them. Verse 2 tells us how he did it. Chapter 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. We see that Adam is created first in verse 7. And the order of creation actually indicates a kind of priority. In a sense, Adam is firstborn and Eve is second. Eve would be fashioned later out of Adam's rib. And this means that Adam, in a sense, has seniority. Not that he is greater in value. That's not true. Because woman also bears the image of God. Not that he is greater in his worth or his dignity. But the, the order of creation is indicative of Adam's responsibility and Adam's authority. Just like Paul Jacobs, you're the oldest kid in, in your house, right? So your parents probably expect a little bit more from you than they do Titus and Ellie. It was the same way with Adam. He's the firstborn. And that brings with it a certain kind of responsibility and authority. We see this fleshed out in verse 15. Notice what God tells Adam. It says, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And this happens before Eve is created. Adam's actually given a job to do. He is given a responsibility to work. He's given certain authority. That word for keeping the garden has the idea of of protecting it, but also of ruling over it. Adam has a job description, and it's not, he's no entrepreneur. It's one that's been given to him by God. It's a delegated authority, and it is a responsibility that comes in the form of a command. God gives him a job to do. He's in charge, but his presence in the garden is meant to bring development and progress and to bring blessing to those around him. His, the, the way that he stewards his authority and his responsibility means the garden is to flourish and grow, which brings blessing not just for creation, but for the people that would come to populate the earth. We see his authority and responsibility also in verse 19. It says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And notice what God does. Brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Adam has the responsibility as part of his ruling over the garden to give names to the animals. In in biblical context, to, to declare the name of something is an expression of authority and superiority over Whatever it is, it signals Adam's strength and his rulership over the garden. And God gives him this job. God brings the animals and says, you name them and you rule over them. He has authority in his dominion. We also see that he doesn't just name the animals, but in verse 23, he actually names Eve. God creates the woman out of his rib. And when Adam awakes, God says in verse 22, the Lord God, uh, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man He made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, 
In this beautiful poem, the first song, he says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In the naming of Eve, Adam is exercising headship. He's being a leader. He's fulfilling his role in the family. God brings Eve to Adam just as he had brought all the animals to Adam. And he gives her to him just as he had given all the animals so that Adam could declare their name. Adam has the authority to name Eve, but he also has a great responsibility. As God brings her to him, he is entrusting her into his care. See, this authority comes with great responsibility. As Adam is responsible for her care. This pattern of responsibility and authority in the garden, it's not just a random detail. It's intentional and it establishes a pattern that's intended to apply at all times and all places as God's design for man. And this is true in the family and it is true in the church. We see that man is to take initiative in the forming of the family. In Genesis 2, and Jesus quotes it in Matthew 19, um, we, we see what, what Moses actually quotes. He says that, therefore, a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. This is important, that the man is the one who leaves. He's performing that action, that he's the one who takes hold of his wife, cleaves to her. It's an action he initiates, and then they become one flesh. This leadership and initiative continues in the life of the family that grows from this union. The man is called to exercise headship as the representative of his his family, the leader of his wife and his children. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. There is an order here that comes from God. Men are submitted to Christ and part of the responsibility he's given them is to lead and care for and shepherd their families. Men are called to not only exercise authority and embrace responsibility in their family, but also in the church as overseers, elders, pastors. Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 specify that it is men who are to fulfill the role of elder or pastor in the church. In 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. This is in the context of the church and the authority that is exercised through preaching and teaching. And Paul gives the reason for this instruction in verse 13. He says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. What does Paul do when structuring the the authority structure of the church? He points back to creation. He says, this is how God designed it to be. And there's implications in the created order for how we do things in the home and in the church. God's design in the garden has implications for us. But as we all know, Adam didn't quite live up to his calling, did he? He was not a good steward of his authority. And he failed to fulfill his responsibilities. Just like Adam, we've all blown it as well, haven't we? Consider how man failed in the garden. We won't take the time to go through the story, the whole story in chapter 3. I hope you're familiar with it. The serpent comes and tempts Eve, seduces her with a lie into eating the fruit that God had told them not to eat. But consider, we always think about what Eve did as being the first sin. 
But consider what Adam didn't do. Consider what he didn't do. Eve was deceived, Paul tells us in the New Testament, but Adam knowingly abdicated his responsibility. What was Adam's first mistake in the garden? His primary failure? He became passive. What did Adam say when the serpent spoke that lie to his wife, this woman that he was to lead and care for and protect? What did Adam say? You can tell me. If you've read the story, you know. He said nothing. He said nothing. What did Adam do when she took the fruit in her hand? Nothing. Adam did nothing. What did Adam do when she ate the fruit? Nothing. Adam finally does act. When she takes the fruit and gives it to him, he obediently takes it from her and follows her lead in eating the fruit. The woman he was supposed to lead, he followed. As a result, the creation that he was supposed to care for is now cursed. And the wife that he had celebrated as bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, we see at the end of chapter 3, he keeps her at arm's length and blames her for his sin. See, Adam's failure to lead, Adam's failure to exercise authority, declaring what is true in the garden, it destroyed his relationship with his wife. It destroyed his relationship with God. And it brought destruction and death to the whole world. Adam's failure in the garden was a failure to lead, a failure to fulfill his responsibility and to rightly exercise the authority that God had given him. And this failure of Adam is like a familiar chorus that gets repeated all throughout Scripture. We can just take a quick skip through the Old Testament and see. Remember the story of Lot, Abraham's nephew? He allowed himself to be drawn into Sodom. And God rescued him by his grace, but remember that picture that it's actually angels who come into Sodom and grab him by the hand and have to drag him away. A failure to lead. A failure to fulfill his responsibility as the head of his house. Remember Abraham, he pretended on two different occasions that his wife Sarah was his sister because he was afraid that somebody would kill him to marry her because she was so beautiful. So what does he do? He hides behind his wife. It's a failure to lead. A failure failure to serve, a failure to protect and provide what his wife needed. And he allowed her then on two different occasions to actually be taken into royal harems, both in the land of Canaan and in the nation of Egypt. Only by God's grace was she rescued from her predicament, predicament. Consider the story of David. We know that David's greatest failure, his adultery with Bathsheba, and the subsequent sin of murder and lying to cover it all up, it happened because he was at home just chilling out on the roof when everyone else was out on the battlefield. He was failing to lead, failing to fulfill his responsibility, and it led him into sin, which brought so much pain and tragedy into his family and ended up even dividing the nation. Think about Solomon, his son. We see the bad fruit of David's sin. Solomon brought in all these foreign wives, and he allowed their idolatry to infect the nation. And it ended up splitting it into two different kingdoms. Civil war followed. And you've probably seen the damage in your own life, haven't you? Of men who have failed to fulfill their God-given calling. That's bad news, isn't it? But there's good news. As we read through Scripture, we don't just see the failures of men and the sin of men. We also see the ultimate success 
of a perfect man. We see that Jesus Christ succeeded where Adam failed. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5 just real quickly. We don't have time to really unpack all of this. But there's an amazing contrast and connection to what we see happening in Genesis chapter 3. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, right there in the first third of the New Testament. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we're jumping into the middle of an argument here, but Paul makes this amazing statement. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and who's that man? It's Adam, right? He doesn't say sin came into the world through Eve. Adam is responsible as the representative of the human race. And it is his sin that brought sin and death into the world. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So it's not just Adam who's guilty, it's all of us. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Saying, listen, it's not just about breaking the law of Moses. Sin has been around a long time before that. But sin is not counted where there's no law. Yet, verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. That word type means that there's something about Adam in the shape of his story and what he represents that actually points forward to something greater, something that is in some ways like Adam, but in other ways greater and different in the fulfillment. Look in verse 18, just skip down there. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, speaking of Adam's sin, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Who is this second man? Who is this greater, truer, better Adam. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect man. Adam represented us in the garden and failed. Jesus represents us in his righteous life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And his representation of us leads to life and blessing instead of death and cursing. Consider what Jesus did. All the ways he succeeded where Adam fails. Where Adam did nothing. Jesus takes initiative. He left his throne in heaven and he came down to earth. He clothed himself with human flesh. Became a man so that he could represent us. When Adam saw everything starting to go bad he did nothing. When Jesus saw, when the Father saw, the Spirit, the Holy Trinity understood what would happen with mankind. They planned an eternity past to take initiative that Jesus would come And that he would bring rescue, that he would solve our problem, that he would deal with our sin to deliver us from death. And consider how he did that. Although Adam was quick to blame his wife and throw her under the bus, Jesus steps in and takes the blame for us through his sacrifice on the cross. He lays down his life for us in loving and humble service. Whereas Adam tries to preserve himself to save his own skin by throwing it all on Eve. Notice what Jesus says in Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul says in Philippians 2, 6, that though Jesus was in the form of God, 
He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be selfishly clung to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Consider how Jesus fulfilled his responsibility where Adam failed. Jesus was committed to the mission his father gave him, and he followed through even when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. He prays, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Where Adam violated the will of God, Jesus fulfilled it, even in the garden, even on trial, all the way to the cross. And the good news about this perfect man, the ultimate man, is that because of Jesus, your failures as a man and mine, they don't have to be final. Jesus comes to save and to forgive, to cleanse us. If you're going to leave here this morning and just try to be a better man by yourself, that's a hopeless endeavor. You can't ever measure up. You can't ever make up for your failings. But Christ has. And in him, you can be forgiven and cleansed. But Jesus just, he didn't just come to forgive us. He also comes to restore us to make us who we are meant to be, not just to give us an excuse to be bums, to say, well, Jesus did it all for me, so I can take the path of least resistance. No, he came to forgive us, but then to make us new, to restore us into what we were meant to be in the beginning, men who fulfill our God-given responsibilities, who are good stewards of the authorities that God has given to us. I'm not just here to tell you today that you're a loser I'm here to tell you you're actually something worse, that you're a sinner, and so am I. And that the only way to deal with sin is through the gospel. It's to come to the foot of the cross and receive the forgiveness that Christ gives and also the transformation that comes through his grace. The good news is that you and I can be forgiven and we can be made new. We can be changed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old things have passed away. The old passive man has passed away. The old selfish man has passed away. The old man who only looks out for himself and what he wants and steps on other people to get there, that's all been put to death. Paul says, behold, the new has come. What is God's design for men today? God's design for masculinity doesn't have anything to do with beards or tractors or how many rushing yards you had in high school. God's plan for masculinity has everything to do with making you to be like Jesus, the ultimate perfect man. Romans 8, 29 says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The men that are the most masculine, in the biblical sense, are the men that are most like Jesus. We're restored to true manhood as we become like Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, you and I don't live in the garden, do we? We don't live in Eden. The game's changed a little bit since then. But God has a calling for each of us as men. And his calling is not unlike that of Adam in the garden. His calling is for us to lead instead of being followers. To take 
necessary initiative and embrace our roles in the home and in the church and in the world. To sacrificially serve others instead of promoting or preserving self. To protect and provide instead of ignoring or using others. We are to spend ourselves for the good of others and the glory of God. To use our strength to bring blessing to others. Men who understand God's calling will become leaders, leaders who serve, and servants who lead. Biblical masculinity, therefore, requires in us men a refusal to be passive, a rejection of pride, and a willingness to deny self for the good of others and the glory of our Father. You know, as we put this vision of masculinity out there, you know, the idea of leading by serving and serving by leading, that might be hard to swallow for some of us. It might be difficult. I want to just bring up a couple potential hindrances that could keep you and me from leading as we should. Some of you might be saying this morning, you know what, I don't really want to be a leader. I just don't have that desire. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that you don't get to choose what your job description is. Adam had no excuse either. He tried to blame God for giving the woman to him, but that didn't work. That didn't fly. And if you say to me this morning, you know what, I, I don't want to be a leader. I, I don't want to be in charge of anything. I don't want to make decisions. I don't want to have to step out in front and take risks. I don't want to have to shoulder those kinds of responsibilities. Well, you know what, God wants to make you like Jesus, and he isn't asking if you think that's a good idea. This is his will for us as men. And if you love God, it will propel you to lead. It will propel you to love others. You know, contrary to what you might expect, leadership isn't independence of thought. It's not having your own ideas. Being a leader doesn't depend on having your own vision, your own agenda for what you want to see accomplished. Leadership is not an assertion of self. It's not creativity. It's not ingenuity. Biblical leadership is submission to the will of the Father that leads to action and obedience. That we lead is a matter of obedience. Where we lead and how we lead is also a matter of obedience. So if you say, I don't want to lead, Scripture tells us that we have to, and it tells us how to, and it gives us the direction we are to lead. Good leaders are simply good followers who listen to their marching orders. You know, in our society, we see personal autonomy as a sign of strength. We admire independent men who chart their own course. But the biblical vision for masculinity is a firm commitment to the authority of God's word. You know, any fool can follow his heart and do what's right in his own eyes. There's nothing to be admired about that. It takes true courage and true strength and self-control and spirit-wrought discipline to follow Christ against the grain of the world against the flesh, against the devil. Our leadership is to be shaped by the word. So the question you have to ask this morning as a man is what does God desire of me? What does God demand of me? What has God said to me? What am I to do? Where am I to lead? How am I to lead? Leadership is first and foremost submission to God. And so if you don't want to, that's something that has to be nailed to the cross. You know, initiative is not a word you're going to find in scripture. You just won't find that word initiative, but you will find the words obedience and faith and faithfulness. You'll find phrases like fearing God. That's the key. 
to being a leader, even if you don't want to. Those desires need to be submitted to the supreme authority of Christ. Some of you might say, you know, another hindrance, well, I understand that, but it's really not my personality to lead. I'm just not wired the same way, you know, maybe Carrie is. Or, J.D., you get up and speak in front of everyone, but that's just not who I am. Or, yeah, I see some of these guys who are good dads, and I'm just not wired that way. That's a fair statement. Maybe you're not. We all have different gifts, different strengths. But let me ask you, will you commit to obey? Because that's a different question. God doesn't make exceptions. Say, I want you to lead unless it's not your personality. If you'll commit to love your God and love your neighbor, if you'll commit to serve, if you'll commit to give yourself to God's purposes for you, then you will lead, even if it's not your personality. And everyone's leadership may look different. Some are more outspoken. Everybody has different giftings, different personalities. But if you will commit to serve God, to obey him, then you will lead. And you know what? God will probably start to change you in the process to become a man that people look to as a leader. We lead rightly when we are faithfully loving God, fearing him, and desiring his glory. You might say, well, you know what? I I know you're telling me I need to be a leader, but I just don't know enough. I I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. Well, first of all, again, to go back to the command of God, you know, so what? Knowledge doesn't make you a leader. There's a lot of people who have tons of knowledge. They're not leaders. Albert Einstein is famous for many things, but not for being a leader of men. Let me ask you, what are you doing with what you already know? Let's start there. And then secondly, if you feel that you don't know enough to be a leader, that's a problem that can be fixed. That's not an excuse that can remain over time. Read your Bible. Seek wisdom from God, from the scriptures, and also from godly men in your life. And it will become clear to you. God's design for your life will become clear. God's design for your marriage will become clear. How to lead your children will become clear. How to serve in your church will become clear. How to be a leader in our world will become clear when you seek to know God's will and then commit to follow through. If you say, I don't know what to do, that's great. Let's commit to obey and let's change that. Let's discover what God's will is for your life. Another hindrance for you may be fear. Some of you men say, okay, I understand this. I believe this is what God wants me to do. I see some things that need to change in my life, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid that I'll fail. I'm afraid that I might make mistakes. I'm afraid of how other people might respond to me if I stick my neck out. But remember that biblical leadership is driven by submission to God. Faith and obedience and conviction are the things that must propel us beyond these fears because as men who are submitted to God, we must be controlled by a greater fear, a fear of God. Some of you might say, you know what? I'm afraid. I'm afraid of how my wife will respond. I'm afraid of what might happen if we make some changes to our lifestyle, what that's going to cost me. Listen, men, we need to be afraid most of all of displeasing God. Do what he says and let the chips fall where they fall. You know, the greatest men of history, the men that we look up to, when you look back across history, not even just the history of the church, but even in the history of our nation, the history of great civilizations, the men who were leaders, the men who were warriors, the men who changed the world, Those men were men 
who were gripped by a purpose that was larger than themselves. If you're going to lead, you're going to have to stop being afraid of how it's going to affect you. And you must allow yourself to be swallowed up in a bigger and greater purpose, one that comes from God, his kingdom, his glory, his purposes for the world. We must be men of principle and character who are willing to sacrifice, to risk, and to step forward with courage because we are driven by deep-seated convictions about what is true and what is right and about what God is doing in the world. That's what will get us past those fears. But you know what? There's not just hindrances to leadership that we're going to have to deal with as men. There's also hindrances to service. You know, some of us may like the idea of being leadership. You're like, yeah, I'll call the shots. I don't mind making decisions. I like being in charge, which again is a very reduced vision of what leadership is. But you know what? A big part of being a leader is being a servant. That's how we lead more often than not. What might hinder you from service, men? Well, for some of you, the reason why perhaps you regularly fail to serve others and to serve God is just a lack of awareness. You say, I don't really know what to do or where to start. I know I'm supposed to be a servant, but okay, what do I do? Well, let me encourage you to pray for open eyes because opportunities abound. Anytime there's people around, there's opportunities to serve because people have needs. People need to be loved. People need to be encouraged. People need to be guided towards truth and away from error. People have spiritual needs, physical needs. And we are called to seek to meet those needs in love. Opportunities abound. Some of you say, okay, I know I'm supposed to be a servant, but I lack desire. You know what? Some guys sit around and say, I expect people to serve me. You know what? I'm tired. I put in a long week at work, and I deserve a break. When I come home, all I want is a hot meal and a couple hours of peace and quiet where I can sit in my chair and watch the news or read the paper or play video games, whatever it is that you do to unwind, read a book, go down to the shop and just work with your hands and pursue your hobbies. I don't know what you do in your time. But you know what? If your attitude is one that I deserve a break, and it'd be nice for people to do something for me once in a while because I'm always doing so much for others, then that's an attitude you need to repent of because you're seeking glory and worship for yourself. And glory and worship only belong to one person, belongs to Christ. He is a jealous God. He's not interested in sharing his glory with you. He's not interested in helping you secure worship for yourself. He doesn't tolerate competition. We need to love God supremely. And what this means is that we will be willing to serve others even when we feel like we have nothing left in the tank, even when we're tired, even when we just want some downtime for ourselves, we will be willing to serve others. Some of you might be hesitant to serve because of perhaps lack of success. You know, you, you might say, you know what, I've tried leading, I've tried serving others. I tried for three whole weeks after my anniversary one time of serving my wife, and it didn't work. She didn't really notice she didn't really appreciate it. It didn't seem to really change anything in our house. I've tried serving my kids. They're just ungrateful. They always want more. I've tried serving in my church, and nobody really appreciated it. Nobody really recognized it. Well, you know what? There's a problem with that attitude when it comes to service. That's not true service. As many people have, have observed, the true test of whether we are servant is that we don't mind being treated like one. Consider, remember what it is that Jesus came to do. Not 
to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And throughout his life, he demonstrated that. He healed. He showed compassion. He washed the filthy feet of his disciples, even though he was the glorious king over all creation. And that's the model for us. Did those whom Jesus served always appreciate it and understand it? No. Do you and I always appreciate and understand the grace of God that has been given to us? No, we don't. You know what? Our service is not done so that people will appreciate or recognize us. We are to render our service as to the Lord. Perhaps we need to redefine what it means to be successful when it comes to being a servant. We don't do it because it works or because we get something back out of it. We do it because it pleases God, because this is how we can best reflect Christ. This is what Jesus did. And we do it because we love people. We want to demonstrate that love to them. God's calling for men is to embrace our role in the home and in the church and in the world as those who serve by leading and leave by serving. And we do it for the good of others and the glory of God because that's how we reflect the glory of Christ. That's how he did it. That's how he did it. So we need to embrace God's design for masculinity. And that's that first point. Like I said, that's most of today's sermon. But there's a second point, just briefly. We don't just need to embrace God's design for masculinity. We need to embrace God's resources when it comes to fulfilling his call. We need to embrace God's resources. If, if the first call is a matter of obedience, the second is a matter of dependence. Because I don't have to tell you this. Leading is hard. Serving is hard. Becoming like Jesus is difficult, and it doesn't happen overnight. You can't just go out of here and change your mind and say, you know what? Yeah, I'm just going to be like Jesus from here on out. And just expect your life to be completely different. It's a process. It's a grind. And nobody said it would be easy. There's going to be obstacles. There are internal obstacles. Your own sin is going to fight tooth and nail against living this kind of way. There's external obstacles. There's the world who may not always applaud the ways we try to lead as men. Perhaps there's specific individuals who don't like when you do what you know God is calling you to do. There's our own circumstances. Sometimes the deck is just stacked against us, and there's a lot of reasons why it's hard. Perhaps just with our own backgrounds and experiences, we've really lacked someone to show us what it looks like to do this well. Perhaps you're a brand new believer, and you're saying, this is all brand new for me, and I don't even know where to start. It's going to be difficult. I'm not here to try to tell you this is easy. But when we recognize that fulfilling God's call for masculinity is more than what we can do on our own, guess what? You're actually now in a position to receive God's grace. Because in his goodness, he has not left us without resources. If you're taking notes this morning, just a couple resources. I want to just bullet point these. Consider God's given us his spirit. And what that means is that even if you are weak, you have access to divine power. If you're going to demonstrate love and patience as you lead and serve, if you're going to demonstrate joy and faith and self-control as you lead, guess what? The only way you can produce that kind of fruit is to walk in the Spirit. That's what Galatians 5 says. You have the power you need to do this, men, not in yourself, but through the Spirit. We also have a second resource, the Scriptures. God's given us the wisdom that we need. We have a roadmap. We have the manual. It's right here. Peter tells us that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. We have the scriptures. We have a third resource in the church. 
If you say, you know what, I'm trying to do this, but I feel spent, I need help, I need encouragement, I need accountability, God provides that in the context of the church. Man, God's vision for masculinity is not that you go out there and do all this like Rambo all by yourself with no help. God calls us to do this together as a family. You're part of a bigger team. Other men are walking the same path with you, and you don't have to figure it all out by yourself. And if you need help and encouragement, maybe if you need some input on what this looks like, that's why God gives the church. What a resource we've been given. And consider the final resource, the perfect man, Jesus Christ. I mentioned this earlier. But when you fail and you're struggling with guilt, some guys quit because they feel that they've blown it too many times. Consider the good news of the gospel, that through the blood of Christ we can be forgiven. Consider that we have a final hope in Christ, that as much as we, as much as we stick our chin into this, it's going to be two steps forward and one step backwards, but Christ's purpose is to one day make you fully and completely like him. Paul says in Philippians, he who began this good work in you will continue to complete it until the day of Christ. One day you will not be who you were and even who you are. God's going to finish what he started, so don't lose hope. Those are amazing resources for us. And if we just try to grit our teeth and try hard without taking advantage of all of those resources, without depending on the spirit and seeking God's will and the word and benefiting from the encouragement of the church and keeping our eyes on Christ, you won't ever be able to do this. It's just too much. It's too much. So how do we respond? Men, I want you to consider this morning in what ways has God called you to lead and to serve? And how are you doing with that? How are, how are you doing in your family? How are you doing in serving and leading in the church? How are you doing maybe in your job, in your community? Are you a passive man who takes the path of least resistance? Are you the kind of man who looks out for yourself rather than serving others? What's keeping you from taking initiative and leading? What's keeping you from serving others? You may this morning need to repent, confess your sin of being a passive consumer of life. You need to confess your sin of self-preservation, fear, disobedience, to renounce perhaps your addiction to comfort, to put to death the sinful laziness that lives in your heart, your constant tendency to do what best benefits you. Friends, this is not the way of Christ. We need to confess our sin today, receive his forgiveness, and commit to allow him to change us and make us new. If you've misused your male position, if you've misused your strength, if anger and pride have been a mark of your manhood, then you need to confess that sin and allow God to cleanse you and change you to become more like Christ and seek humility, embrace the role of a servant. But so a lot of you here in the room, though, aren't men. And I see a lot of women here. Does this have nothing to do with you? No, I actually do have some things I want to encourage you with this morning. Some of the things we've talked about today at a basic level are actually not completely unique to men. Much of what we've talked about today applies to you as well because God just doesn't want to change men to become like Jesus. He wants you to become like Christ as well. You know, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells the whole church, he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. You know, service is for all of us. Faithfulness is for all of us. Humility is for all of us. Courage and spiritual strength are given to all of us through the Spirit and the Scriptures and the church. 
So much of this today applies to you as well. I encourage you to embrace that as you seek to obey Christ and become more like him. But I secondly want to encourage you, pray for the men in your life. Pray for the men in your life to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be more masculine. We'll talk more about this in future weeks, but you're not going to be able to nag your husband or your son or your dad into being this kind of man. It's going to take spiritual transformation, and only God can accomplish that. So pray for them. And pray for those faithful brothers who are doing their best, but they're figuring it out. Encourage them. Sometimes a little word of encouragement goes a long ways. But third, women, I want to encourage you this morning to affirm biblical leadership, to celebrate instances of service and courage and initiative in the lives of the men around you. Blow some wind in their sails. Affirm that, celebrate that, because you believe that it's good, that this is God's will, and that men and women flourish when both fulfill their unique responsibilities. For those of you who are single this morning, I want to encourage you to look for and date and marry this kind of a man. Maybe you need to kind of reshape your list, you know, that list of what you're looking for in a husband, what kind of man he must be. There's nothing in here about how tall he is. There's nothing in here about how much money he makes. There's nothing in here about him being Mr. Wonderful and fulfilling all your dreams. There's a lot here about him being like Christ and being headed a certain direction. That's the kind of man you need to look for. And then I also want to encourage you women to examine your hearts this morning because it's possible that some of you may need to actually confess sin and repent because you've opposed biblical masculinity. Maybe you've gotten in the way when men have tried to serve God and follow God and lead in that direction because you didn't like it, because you didn't trust them. I'm not sure what it looks like in your life, but if you've ever gotten in the way of men fulfilling their calling, it's not that you need to make things right with men. You need to make things right with God. You don't want to be in opposition to his will and his design. But for some of you, maybe it's not that you've actively opposed biblical masculinity Perhaps some of you women have actually enabled it because you've tolerated it and you've maybe just tried to make up for your man's shortcomings. You've just done things for your son so that he doesn't have to be this kind of man. Sisters, I want to encourage you this morning to seek to see the men around you become more like Christ, not to oppose it and not to enable any sort of inferior kind of masculinity. For those of you who are moms, I want to encourage you to raise godly boys. Parent them towards this biblical ideal. I think a temptation sometimes for single moms is to parent their sons into being what they need them to be for themselves instead of shepherding them towards what God wants them to be. And single moms, I know you're at a disadvantage because you're doing it by yourself. You don't have a man in the house to model this. You don't have a man in the house to lead But I want to encourage you, single moms, you too have the spirit of God, infinite power. You too have the word of God, perfect truth. You too have the church, the family of God. You don't have to do it all by yourself. And you too have Jesus, the perfect model for your sons. I want to encourage you with that. For those of you who are are some of the young boys in the room this morning, now we've got a couple in here with us today. You're not yet men, but you're going to be. I want to encourage you this morning, pray for God to make you this kind of a man, to be a leader who's not afraid, to be someone who wants to follow Jesus no matter what the cost, to do the right thing even when it's hard, to use your strength 
whatever much you have, to bless other people and to serve other people rather than using it for yourself. That's the kind of man that God wants to make you. And what you need is to believe in Jesus and to follow Jesus and let him make you this kind of a man. So men, let me ask you, are you going to go with the flow? Are you going to passively allow life to happen to you? Or are you going to obediently take action today? Submit to his will and humbly seek to advance his purposes with your time and your energies and your talents. I pray that we would embrace our calling this morning and lay hold of the divine resources God's given us so that by his grace we can live out God's design for masculinity, for the good of our families and for the good of our church, for the good of our world and for the glory of our God. Father in heaven, as we look into your word, it's humbling because we see that the bar has been set really high. You've given us great responsibilities and you've delegated certain authorities to us and gifts to us that we are to steward in such a way that honors you and blesses others. Lord, I confess that I've not always fulfilled this in my life. None of us have. And Lord, as we consider your design today, I pray that you'd give us, first of all, a humble heart, willing to acknowledge our failure, a willingness to confess our sin and repent and turn from that sin a willingness to obey and submit to your design, but also pray that you would strengthen our faith. God, sometimes it's just so hard to believe that we could ever really overcome some of the obstacles in our life, some of the failures in our past. But God, I pray that you would help us to look to Jesus today and know that our sins are nailed to the cross. Help us to believe that you are changing us to be like you. Pray that we would embrace the power of your spirit and the truth of your word, the help of the church as we look to Christ and seek to become like him. God, I pray that as we men in this church fulfill our calling, that the women and children around us would flourish in their faith, that they would become more like Christ, that they would be blessed by our leadership and by our service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.